Hello, everyone, and welcome to Loaf Season 2, Episode 1, the beginning of a new season and a new term. Today, we're very excited to have Mr. Gabe Howard on our show, mental health advocate and author of Mental Illnesses and Asshole and Other Observations. Gabe Howard is a podcaster. Uh, he's interviewed Jeanette McCurdy in the past, as well as Dr. Phil. And we're really, really excited and honored to have him as a guest today. He spoke at the Oxford Union a couple of months ago, and Loaf is just glad for him to be joining us. Um, Gabe, would you like to give a short introduction of yourself before we get started? I mean, I really can't top that, right? I, I'm I'm also a guy who lives with bipolar disorder, and that's that's how I became a mental health advocate. And I'm I'm super, super excited to be here. Thank you for the very, very kind words. They always kind of embarrass me a little bit. Like, like, right. If, if, if people compliment me, I'm like, oh, I don't deserve that. But if people are mean to me, I'm like, oh, I don't deserve that. So I've really created this no win scenario. It's, it's best just to ignore me. That's really yeah. what I'm saying. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit just before we get into sort of the substantive topics about mental health advocacy and, and different controversial questions in general? Do you want to tell us a little bit about your mental health story, just to give a quick introduction to the people listening? I know you've said it a million times, but just a, a quick run through. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 26 years old. So roughly 20 years ago, after being committed to a psychiatric hospital, there's a few key points that I really like to get out into the world. And the first one is, is I thought about suicide as far back as I can remember, you know, two years old, five years old, 10 years old, 15 years. Suicide is just something that I thought about every day. And because I was born thinking this way, I, I thought it was normal. I thought that everybody was thinking about suicide. And of course, because I was born with bipolar disorder, the, the, the mania, the depressions, obviously the suicidality, I also thought that was normal. And my family, they didn't recognize the symptoms of bipolar disorder in me. They, they didn't think there was any mental illness or mental health challenges going on. So they tried to handle the symptoms of bipolar disorder by punishing me, right? They, they thought they were behavioral problems. And that's not to throw my parents under the bus and say they were bad people. I want to be very, very clear. We were all sort of operating with, with disinformation, no information, uh, a, a, just a, a giant lack of understanding of what was going on. Uh, so we had to fall back on the things that we knew that we learned from television, pop culture, or well-meaning, well-intentioned friends who would say things like, oh, well, I would never let my child have an outburst like that. I would do X, Y, Z. And so they thought, well, okay, let's do X, Y, Z. The thing that I want to be clear on is you can't punish the symptoms of mental illness out of anybody. Uh, and uh, by doing so, I, I wanted to be good. I wanted to listen. I didn't think that my parents were unreasonable. So as they gave me instructions, I tried to follow them and I, and I was unaware of why I couldn't. So the whole thing just sort of devolved into me thinking that I was bad, uh, them thinking that, that they just couldn't do any more with me. And, 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 you know, to really wrap up 26 years into a bow, I, it really sort of left me isolated alone and just feeling like I was garbage because I just couldn't make anybody, including myself, uh, happy. And, and, and that's where I was. That's how the whole thing started 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Wow. That, that's some powerful stuff to be honest. Uh, but it's, it's great that you're, you're here now, um, center stage on the, on the love podcast and, uh, and we're, we're glad that you also came to Oxford. I really enjoyed it also, um, for all the People who don't know, we had lunch together when he came to visit and uh, I showed him around Christchurch and Mortlin, gave him a tour of the Union, you know, and he spoke in the, the same place as Albert Einstein. And uh, it was a great experience. I keep telling everybody that, like I spoke <laughs> at the same place as Albert Einstein, meaning Gabe, Albert Einstein, same. We're same, same. We're exactly the same. <laughs> exactly. Right. Just yes, that's 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 how I see it. That's not a bipolar thing. I actually have proof. Exactly. So you talked to, um, about your personal journey, um, discovering your bipolar when you were 26. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, have you encountered over the past 20 years or so um, any differences in the way that men and women have been um, treated in terms of their mental health or mental illness? Do you think there are uh, both by society, both by culture and both medically and by professionals. Is there like a a, a stark difference between how we address um, issues um, related to both women, mental health issues related to women or to men? 
there's a it, that is that is such a massive question. The first thing I want to say is there it, it's unequivocally a difference. And uh, I know that the audience can't see me, but I am a 46 year old middle class white male in America. So I have the most privilege that America has to offer somebody just just from from everything. I've I've I I have all the privilege. And uh, then it was taken away because of mental illness. So this this was uh, it, it was a stark contrast to I got every benefit of the doubt to I got no benefits of the doubt. So it, it really did hit me hard. I, I remember once I, I talked to somebody, I was I was talking to a female friend of mine and, and we were just having a conversation and I said, you know, it, it's awful. It, it used to be if I applied for a job and I didn't get it, it's because I wasn't qualified. Well, now if I apply for a job and I didn't and I don't get it, it, it could be because of the bipolar disorder. It could be because of something I wrote. It could be because of discrimination towards people with mental illness. And she looked me right in the eyes and she said, you know, welcome to being a woman. This is this is what we are faced with every day. And I really took that to heart because I was unaware of that. So I, I do want to acknowledge that and make sure we're doing it. But, you know, privilege is one of those things that it, when it's gone is when it's very, very noticeable. I didn't have to worry about any of these things mm -hmm. until people found out that I had bipolar disorder. Now, let me let me take off the Gabe Howard hat and just put on the straight up mental health advocacy hat. We don't have to ask if there's discrimination towards the treatment of people with mental illness. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, if you are in America, I remember I'm from America, so I'm, I can I can only speak conclusively in America. But uh, if you are uh, white and middle class, you will have more services available to you than if you are white and lower class or in a rural area. If you are white and middle class, you will have more services than if you are black and middle class uh, or or any uh, uh, ethnic minority in America. You will have more services available to you if you are a woman. Uh, however, they'll be very paternalistic in nature, people telling you what to do for your own good. You will have less services available to you if you are uh, male. Uh, however, you'll have more freedom and ways to choose. And this is really Really, the, the, this example, you never get a perfect example in your life very often, but in America, we have Britney Spears and we have Kanye West. Mm -hmm. Both have bipolar disorder. Uh, one was the subject of a multi-year uh, conservatorship where her father got to make all of the decisions because she was acting erratic in public. Uh, and now we have Kanye West, a male who is, well, frankly, batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. just, like, his behavior is... Just just vastly beyond any odd or concerning behavior that Britney Spears ever showed, and nobody is entering him into a conservatorship. Mm -hmm. All of this just to say it's just everywhere. The, 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 the discrimination against people with mental illness just permeates our culture. And everybody just throws that in there. It's like, well, but he has bipolar disorder. Well, are we sure we can trust her? She has bipolar disorder. Well, you know, she's got a history of mental illness. And it, it it's, it's unfortunate because it, it's difficult. I, I just, it's so difficult to combat yeah. because it, sometimes it might be relevant because let's be honest, if we have somebody with a history of erratic behavior who has, you know, drastic mood swings and they apply for a job as a police officer, remember in America, police officers carry guns. I don't know that I think that that person is psychologically capable of being a law enforcement officer. Uh, but that said, could you imagine if they just said, hey, every single person with any mental health history ever cannot do X job? Well, I don't like that either. Mm -hmm. So where does this all land? And it, it, it's, it's a quagmire. It's a quagmire. But to answer your question straight up, yes, there is absolutely unequivocally discrimination against people with mental illness. Uh, even among people who all have mental illness, there's discrimination in that group as well. Um, frankly, based on other discrimination that would come up, whether you had mental illness or not, gender, sexuality, uh, uh, race. It's it, it. Frankly, it's just. Yeah, it's just no, a that's... shit show over here, Lucas. It's just a shit show. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really interesting. And um just to pick up on one thing that you said regarding Kanye West, because it's been in the media um, as of late, and it's really interesting. What kind of responsibility do you think Kanye has 
And how does that responsibility change because of the fact that he has bipolar? And how should our opinion of him change because he has bipolar? Because obviously he's been saying some very radical and crazy stuff. So here's where it gets really, really complicated. The first thing that I want to say is when you have an action, if you are living with bipolar disorder and you do something, it may or may not be your fault, right? We, we don't want to exclude the fact that bipolar made me do it is in fact valid. Uh, but no matter what, whether bipolar made you do it or whether bipolar didn't make you do it, it does not matter why you did it, right? That this is, I cannot be clear. It does not matter why you did something. It is always your responsibility. And we understand this in other areas, right? If I'm driving my car and I have a seizure, right? And I have a seizure and I run into the back of Lucas's car and yeah. Lucas sees me having a seizure. Yeah. Lucas, the, the, the good man that he is, will render aid. He, and he'd be like, oh, wow, you know, th th this man wrecked into the back of my car because he was having a seizure. He would call, he would call the, 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 the medical establishment. He would get me help, et cetera. And then when it was all over, he'd be like, Hey, I'm really glad you're okay. It's not your fault. You ran into my car. So I'm going to go ahead and pay for it all. No, he'd never say that. He'd be like, you owe me for a car. You hit my car. He doesn't care why I hit his car. He, I would have to pay for it. And listen, I agree with that. If I have a seizure and ran into somebody's car, house, whatever, that is my financial responsibility. It's not my fault. It's the seizure's fault, but it's my responsibility. We lose this for some reason with bipolar disorder. Either we say, oh, it's the bipolar, so I have nothing. It, it, I, can, I can do and say and behave however I want with impunity because it's all bipolar's fault. That you, you can't, that's not an empowering statement at all. And mm -hmm. you, you asked about Kanye, and here's what I love about Kanye. Whenever something like really, really bad happens and it's like just really, really bad shit crazy, everybody's like, well, but he has bipolar disorder. We don't want to stigmatize him. We have to be reasonable and fair and, and give him grace and kindness. Uh, but whenever he he says something that people agree with, like if he says something about a political candidate you like or says something about social issues that you like, then suddenly that man has 100% control of his faculties and we should listen to him. That man is a genius and, and, and just, wow, he is the smartest guy. So I don't understand how somebody in the exact same day can say something and you're like, that's not his fault. He has bipolar disorder. And then three hours later, he says something else and you're like, that's a genius. He is a critical thinker and we should listen to him. So it just shows you that we're just, we're just cherry picking. We're just trying to decide what we want and we, we've got a, a ready-made excuse for him. Bottom line, Kanye West has done, uh, um, for, forget about public, Kanye West has done a lot of damage to his children. Mm -hmm. he's, done a, he's done a lot of damage to his ex-wife. He has done a lot of damage to the people in his circle. I, I'm not even going to talk publicly about the damage that he has no doubt done. I'm just going to talk about the fact that he is responsible for minor children and mm. he is hurting them. I he mean, hurting the mother of those children and he's not taking responsibility for it after years. I mean, um, on Kanye, um, I know he was checked into rehab a few years ago and he seems to have come out of that even worse, like as in publicly. What do you think sort of the efficacy of rehab is for people who have bipolar? I think that, that Kanye is, on one hand, he's a great example of certain things, but he's also a really bad example. The, the bottom line is the majority of us are not millionaires. We're not famous. We're not, he really is an exceptional musical talent and business person. We, we, we cannot take that away from him, nor should we. But many people are like, well, my son has bipolar disorder. What can I learn from Kanye? Nothing, nothing. Is your son a rap mogul? No. Is your son a multimillionaire? No. Your son ever date a Kardashian, let alone marry one? <laughs> I mean, just, just no. You, there, there's not a lot that we in the, in the, in, 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 in the, the general space can learn from the life of a multimillionaire. Kanye is propped up by people who are frankly, uh, they're, 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 they're probably ass kissers. They probably want his money more than they care about him. And that's super unfortunate for Kanye because there's probably somebody out there that is like, dude, I love you and I care about you and I want you to get help and I want you to do these things. And mm -hmm. maybe he listens sometimes, but there's a whole bunch of people that are like, you didn't need that. That person's unreasonable. You're the greatest of all time. You can behave however you want. You met with the president. Why you, why do you need this? And th that's gotta be a conflicting message for Kanye to take in yeah. because there's what he wants to hear and what he needs to hear. 
So I really don't think that we can learn anything from him except for this. Uh, Kanye West is known to have bipolar disorder. He's known to have millions of dollars and tons of resources, and it, he's struggling to manage the illness. So it, you can imagine somebody without those resources, it, it, what struggle would they have to manage the illness? That said, it, it is manageable if you can get access to the right resources, the right support group, and you can you can do the right thing. Uh, but and this is the last thing that I'll say on the subject. It takes a very long time. Mm -hmm. So many people expect somebody to get diagnosed with bipolar disorder and within a month or two be well. It, it took me four years and I had a lot of great support and a lot of great resources. It's not uncommon to take years to really reach that, the, the level of stability that people want and need. Yeah. I mean, you said about Kanye having resources that might be a negative, right? In the way that he's able to spend it and he can do loads of damage and things, but Unlike many Americans, what he does have is basically unlimited access to some of the best healthcare in the world. On that note, how do you think um, the American health system is failing the mentally ill? Do you think, where do you think it's potentially going wrong? And what do you think some solutions might be for that? Because I know I it's- I think uh... in many ways, the, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I think in many ways, the American health system fails a lot of people a, a lot of the time. And I, I know that's not your question. I just, that needs mm -hmm. to hover above this answer. Let's look at mental illness. Mental illness's onset is 16 to 24. That, that's the average. It, it doesn't mean that you can't be diagnosed later. I certainly was. And it doesn't mean that you can't be diagnosed younger. There, there's, there's certainly many, many cases. But, but looking at the average, 16 to 24. In America, you get your health insurance from your job. And the better job you have, the better health insurance you have. Now, I don't know many 16 to 24-year-olds who have what we would call like impressive careers, yeah. right? The majority of 16 to 24-year-olds are either still in high school, uh, still in college, uh, just getting started at their job. They're, they're, they're working their way up. So maybe they've, they've got a year or two in. Uh, but the majority of 16 to 24-year-olds do not what we would have uh, not what we would call great jobs with great health care. So you have this really, really scary disease, illness, disorder that needs a lot of medical attention that is expensive and you don't have a way to pay for it. So that's problem number one. Uh, now let's look at problem number two. See, let's say that I'm 50 years old. In fact, let, 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 let's go, let's go 35. I'm even going to knock it down to 35. Let's say that I'm 35 years old and I have been working since I graduated from high school, mm. right? So I've been from 18 to 35. I have had a job. I'm working hard. I, I've probably bought a house, maybe have a spouse, maybe a kid or two, maybe a dog. I've accomplished stuff. I've been supporting myself for 17 years. And then suddenly I get sick. I stop going to work. Everybody immediately looks at me and says, what happened? Gabe, are you okay? What's going on? This isn't the Gabe we know. Well, Gabe, you, you went to work every day for 17 years, paid your own way. You, you have built deep roots in the community and you have a reputation as somebody that handles their shit. We trust you because we've seen you work hard and we know that you can, and this is aberrant behavior. So we're going to all rally around you and support you. Now, remember the 16 to 24? So now 16 to 24, let's go ahead and say that you're 24. I've literally just picked the top age and all of a sudden you don't go to work anymore. What's everybody say? Lazy, entitled. Millennial comes up a lot, even though 24 year olds are not millennials. Uh, avocado toast gets brought up a lot in America. Yeah. Uh, if they would only stop getting their, their, their coffees. So, so you, you haven't really built those deep roots. You haven't, you haven't established this reputation as a hard worker for the past you know, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. So everybody looks at you and says, you're lazy. So mm. society looks at you and says, you're lazy. You don't have good health insurance and you have a serious and persistent mental illness to manage. That is what many 16 to 24 year olds are faced with when they get diagnosed with mental illness. And that is why they can't get any help uh, moving forward. And that is where we are really, 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 really failing people. Uh, because make no mistake, uh, I am not here because I worked harder than everybody else. Uh, I'm here because I had more resources than anybody else and because I worked very hard. Uh, the, the, the two really, really go hand in hand. And in America, there's a lot of people that never make it past step one 
which is getting access to those resources how, for all of the reasons that I just 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 named. <laughs> how how do you think the American system and the English system compares? Do you think one's particularly better than the other? I don't know how much you know about the English system. So first, I I always like to give that little caveat that of course I am not an expert on the the English healthcare system. I I'm I I I know enough to be dangerous, but but here is the way that I understand it. In America, you can be denied healthcare because you don't have money. That that's just a hard stop right there. In England, you can't be denied healthcare for any reason. That and that alone is is a is a really really huge difference. In America, we are willing to send you home to die because you don't have money. Just that that's just a hard stop. That it's sad that it's a controversial statement because nobody wants to think about it, but let's be clear. There are people in America right now with treatable illnesses that will die because they can't afford treatment. It is my understanding and, and please all of you correct me if I'm wrong, it is my understanding that that is not something that happens in England. We don't send you home to die because you don't have money. And that and that alone, uh, apply that to mental health or apply that to anything. Yeah. Uh, that makes me uh, really, really, yeah. really in favor of the English system. Well, while that's true, there are people who have to wait years on a waiting list to get psychiatric medication if they can't pay. So in that in that sense, while the English system, I believe, is better, there still are flaws naturally. And I think mentally ill people still still suffer a lot of the time. Yeah, there's quite a few people close to me who are who are on massive waiting lists for mental health disorders or illnesses at the moment, which I may really need it like soon. For instance, um, I think I spent eight months. Um, I received um CBT from NHS Comms. I we had to wait for eight months on the waiting list to receive that uh that treatment. Uh, partly because of how the um NHS within England is structured. Um, so there are of course deficits within the English healthcare system. Um, yeah. And here's the really here's the thing that's going to blow everybody's mind. So if you have a Mercedes-Benz healthcare in America, uh, waiting six, nine, twelve months to see somebody is perfectly normal here as well. Uh, and uh, but of course, if you have no health insurance, the waiting list is forever. Uh, so we we have those huge waiting lists as well. Uh, even if you pay into insurance, yeah, and. You know, I, I hear, I know a little bit about Canada because I, I have a, a bipolar advocate. Uh, her name is Natasha Tracy, really excellent advocate, and she lives in Canada. So we swap stories all the time. And what we've come up with is it doesn't seem to matter where you live. There's a waiting list for mental health services. Mm -hmm. The only difference is, is in America, uh, you can literally just not ever get services, whereas no matter how long you have to wait in other countries, you, you do seem to eventually get to the yeah. promised land. I think the we is, don't have that. I'd say the difference is in England, if you go via the private healthcare route, in America, it's sort of getting access to the healthcare in the first place. And then in England, I think it's to sort of quite significantly shorten the wait list, but at, at pretty extortionate prices. So it's really only probably the top 1% who, who can afford that sort of thing. Certainly if you've got like a suit, you know, I mean, the sort of care that's required for mental health disorders often can be super expensive with the therapy, the medication, et cetera. So I think it is it is definitely a very, very small percentage of people, but that waiting list can be decreased. But yeah. There there's there's a huge problem worldwide with getting access to mental health care. And and I I I do not I can I cannot speak conclusively for why this is, but it is it is my opinion. And that's all it is. It's just my opinion. It's my opinion is because we just really don't take mental health all that seriously. Uh, for one thing, look at the way we speak about it. This is the example that I always use. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, anxiety about your first day of work or, or test taking anxiety is called mental health. Uh, severe schizophrenia, where you think that a dragon is chasing you and you're literally taking a fork and carving on your own skin to get the bugs off is also called mm -hmm. mental health. Uh, this would be the literal equivalent of calling terminal cancer and a headache, both physical health. Now, they are both physical health, but we have an understanding. We have a basic understanding that headaches and terminal cancer are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. We don't have a basic understanding, at least in America, and largely what I've seen worldwide, we don't have a basic understanding that, that, that having anxiety or grief or being fearful of something or having a panic attack and severe and persistent schizophrenia again with the dragon chasing you and 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 the delusions etc are the same thing and i think that's very very problematic because i think that many people are just like oh mental health 
we had a coworker that was just always anxious in meetings and now we want to rearrange our whole world for that. Well, one, yes. Uh, but two, what do you do for the person with schizophrenia that's being chased by the dragon that's carving on themselves with a fork? Uh, the fact that we think those two things are the same thing is very, very dangerous for us. Yeah, I mean, that's such a such a good point. And it, it brings us to the question of, of stigma as well, because the stigma surrounding mental health in general, I don't think you can say, well, the stigma around mental health full stop or mental illness full stop. There's different kinds of stigma towards different kinds of mental illnesses. So you could say stigma around anxiety, for example, has to a certain extent been getting has been reduced to a certain extent however for psychosis and delusions for example and bipolar and schizophrenia it almost seems a bit more difficult to resolve and um, if someone thinks oh he's going crazy it's um it's a slightly different approach to oh he's feeling anxious and he has or he has depression how do you address this and how do you think different approaches um vary a lot of this is driven by fear i i have uh, panic attacks and anxiety and I also have delusions, but let, let's talk about like my worst panic attack ever. Just the, the worst, worst, worst panic attack that I ever, ever had. I, I was still there enough that I could communicate to the people around me. Hmm. You know, I, I could say if I choose, I, I'm having a panic attack or I, I, I could run interference like, oh, it's just diarrhea. I got to get to the bathroom. But the, these things aren't scary, right? Even a guy all sweaty who looks you know, saying, Hey, I've got diarrhea and running to the bathroom is not scary right now. Let's talk about delusions, psychosis, hearing voices, things like that. See those people uh, more often than not, uh, they don't understand what's going on around them. So they're not running any sort of interference on their behalf. They're screaming, there's a fucking dragon. And now everybody's afraid because there's a big guy yelling, there's a dragon. And nobody immediately thinks, Oh, they might be having a mental health crisis or they have a mental illness. They're, they're thinking, there's a crazy person around me, my children, my family, my loved ones. And, and maybe this manifests in a way where, you know, look, I, I want you all to know if we were hanging out and a dragon came to eat us, I would defend you. I'd start throwing cans at the dragon. Now, if there was a real dragon there, I would be a hero. But the problem is, is only, only I can see the dragon because I'm the only one having a, a mental health crisis. So now you've got this big 250 pound guy screaming, get down and then taking cans and throwing it at a Coke machine. And, and, and that's what everybody is seeing. That's not what I'm seeing. I don't know. I think that everybody is upset because the dragon is there. Everybody's actually upset because I'm there. I can't run any interference and defend myself in any way. So I'm responding to you with what I see in my own eyes. And what I see is a dragon trying to kill all of you. What mm -hmm. you see, let, let's just be honest, is a crazy person who's dangerous and could hurt you. Because what if I think you're a dragon next and start throwing cans at you? What if now, now add, add weapons, firearms, add what if I'm in a car when this happens? So people become very, very fearful and where their mind goes, and frankly, I, I, can't even, I can't even fault them for this. Where their mind goes is, how can I protect myself and get away from this dangerous man? Mm -hmm. I'm not dangerous because I'm evil and malicious, but make no mistake, there's danger there. Now, now that's the, that's, I, I want to be clear to your audience that we, we've gone from one extreme to the other, and there's a million examples in between. But I think this is why people get so frightening severe mental illness, psychosis, delusions, hallucinations are terrifying. And even me, who's one experienced delusions and two, am, am just a well-established mental health advocate who's been on locked psychiatric wards. It's even scary to me. I just have more training, but. Do you feel like there's a danger that um, with anxiety and depression, people view them like their normal day-to-day -day feelings? So you might feel anxious about, a pitch, for example, you might feel depressed because you lost your job, but that doesn't necessarily constitute anxiety and depression as an actual mental illness. Do you think there's something wrong with the with sort of the word, the terms? I, I really, I really dislike the way that we talk about mental health and and mental illness, and and not on the person first language bandwagon or the we need to use. No, it's just depression has two meanings in the English language. 
depression is uh, Lucas failed a test and now he's depressed. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Uh, but also it's a perfectly reasonable to say Gabe suffers from depression and is suicidal. And now what's the difference between Gabe and Lucas? We've both used the right words and we both des described things 100% accurately according to the English language. Uh, but what Lucas needs is, you know, hey, let's study more. Can I, can I get you a tutor? It'll be okay. You'll get him next time. And what Gabe needs is medical care, right? But we've both used the same word, same thing with anxiety. It is more than reasonable to be anxious about giving a public speech in front of a hundred people, a thousand people, 10,000 people that being on television, just it, that that's normal. Right. But it, it it's, it's also uh, anxiety is also what we use to describe, you know, literally heart racing and, and blurred vision and, and becoming all sweaty and not being able to move. We we've done a little bit better. Like, you know, we have anxiety attacks, right? We had, we had an attack or, or you can level it up to panic attack, but in general, we use a lot of the same words to describe very normal emotions and mental illness emotions yeah. and i i do think that needs to change i think one but of the sincerely i don't know how to make it change these are the words the english language is just disgustingly awful if you think about yeah. it the problem is as well i think is with the pragmatics of the english language even when you introduce those sort of new terms if they become well known enough and awareness is raised they just become subsumed into everyday normal conversation so for a lot of people panic attack means more panicky than usual or like, oh my God, I feel like I'm going to have a panic attack before I go into this interview. But what you're actually feeling is just like a racing heart and you're a little bit exactly. more nervous. So there's a bit and, of a dilemma and, there. And language is always evolving, right? Mm -hmm. Just the, the, when, when I was a kid, a, a, everything that was bad was good. It's like, that's bad. Oh, that means he likes it. Now it's that sick. That means he likes <laughs> it. And actually that that's, it's probably not even that. There's probably like just another one that my I generation- you sick. We still use sick. You still use sick. All right. Yeah. I, I see, I feel young <laughs> hanging out with y'all. Lucas is- um. When he first arrived at Oxford, he always used tight. Like that's so yep. tight. <laughs> but that's not really something we use in England. I think that's more of an American term, right? Like dope. Nice. No, I, I've heard that. But but there, there's so many of them. Like in the 1950s, like, whoa, that's heavy. Yeah, they're not talking <laughs> about the weight of something or, or, you know, in the 80s, everything was cool, right? It just, that's cool. And I, I know some of these have survived through the generations and they get picked up and they come in and out of play. But the bottom line is, you've got to be careful, right? Because if you're constantly using sick to mean something's cool, and then you send somebody a text message and listen, I, I think that texting has, has caused another layer that we are unaware of. You know, if every time I talk to Lucas, I'm like, how are you doing? He's like, oh, Oxford is sick. How are you doing? Oh, Christchurch is sick. And then he sends me a text message and he says, I'm sick. I'd be like, hey, that's awesome. <laughs> Lucas is doing well. And why would I think anything else? And Lucas is just like, look, and see, in Lucas's mind, he's like, man, I reached out to a mental health advocate, a, a dude who should understand because I'm not doing well. And he just ignored me and sent me an emoji with a thumbs up. So <laughs> he doesn't care about me. And you can see where that misunderstanding is just super easy to happen because, you know, there's, there's, there's often not, you know, there's no context or, or, or no enunciation behind a text message. Yeah. So that's added another layer. I mean, it has a humorous element, but at the end of the day, it's such a serious thing. And, and, uh, and texting has actually, um, I think, for communication, increased the level of miscommunication. And we also have to point out that, but let's be honest, like what a burden. Just think about this for a minute. We always hear that, that the, the ability to be understood is on the communicator, so if there is a misunderstanding, it's the communicator's fault, right? You've got to fix it, right? Like you are communicating. You can't blame the audience for misunderstanding you. You have to find a speaker or a podcaster or an author, but you're sick. You're sick and you're being misunderstood. And now you have to fix that on top of being sick. And we're talking about mental health here. Now, remember, we've, we've got everything from anxiety all the way to severe schizophrenia. Remember the dragons. And so um, imagine if you're trying to communicate that you need help while also seeing dragons. It, it, it's almost yeah. an impossible task. We have seen stable, you have seen Oxford students have trouble communicating. You're literally at Oxford, one of the greatest learning institutions in the entire world, and you've seen ineffective communicators. So now just to imagine trying to communicate well when you're sick. It, it, it's, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. talked about how... Um... Yeah, as you just said, there's a motif of miscommunication between those who are sick and those who, um, who 
who are in correspondence with them, of course. Uh, but there's also I, I listened to your podcast um, or podcast episode um, inside mental health with uh, uh, Dr. Jenny Wang, um, mm-hmm. and I, I found it really uh, close to home because partly because I'm I have a Southeast Asian heritage, and so is Adam. Um, that um, she addressed that there's a major cultural miscommunication between um, the Eurocentric view of mental health and a lot of these minorities um, issues struggling with mental health. Um, and that also feeds into sort of religion as well, oh, because cool. I'd, I'd say for Faris and I, we both come from Muslim families, and a lot of the time it's like, okay, go and pray to Allah, or like yeah. go and pray to God, go to the mosque, do this, mm-hmm. do that. When you know, sometimes that's these are necessarily the the way forward. These, I guess, these practices continue on within uh, these cultures, but may not be so helpful for. Um, I guess solving issues or mental health issues within the modern world. Um, I just, I just wanted to ask you: Have you uh, have uh, um, interacted, or, or uh, are there are there any issues and how we can solve them within these minority spaces? The first thing I want to say is: is advocates like Dr. Jenny Wang are they're the ones who are going to help solve this, right? This mm-hmm. just the the only thing that I can really do is make sure that they have space on my show. That's all I can control. Uh, but I, I want to say that I do think that we need to broaden our 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 definition of culture mm-hmm. for so long. And, and remember, I'm 46 years old and I learned in public school that that culture was race. And, and that's not what culture is. There's culture can be all kinds of things. Families have cultures. Workplace have cultures. Uh, uh, the, the type of job that you do has culture. I was raised in a blue class culture. And the only reason that's relevant is because in, in blue class culture, especially in the 80s, I was raised to be a man and men don't express emotions. Men are tough. And if anything happens to you, rub mud on it and handle your business. And this obviously didn't serve me because I needed medical intervention for what my family largely saw as emotional issues. So you can imagine it was a little bit of struggle for them because they're like, well, we want them to be tough. We don't, we don't want them to be a wuss. We don't want them to be whiny. You know, they they used a, a lot of we discussed masculinity very toxically in my family in the eighties, but I want to point out that we didn't know it was toxic. We didn't, we didn't, they didn't know that they were putting in harm's way. This wasn't a malicious act because my dad wanted me to grow up to be a, a, a an asshole or, or misogynistic or cruel. He, he thought that he was doing me a favor. Mm-hmm. He thought that he was teaching me to be self-reliant and, and to take care of my family and all of this and I'm only speaking about it this way, not to interject, you know, white culture into the conversation, but because that's all I can know. That's my lived experience. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to advocates like Dr. Jenny Wang, I, I find out that this is rampant everywhere in, in, in religion, in, in, uh, in, in race, in even socioeconomic and jobs, et cetera. And what we need to understand is just because it's that way in our culture, one doesn't make it true and doesn't mean that there's not a better way. And I think this is a very tough conversation for people uh, because especially like, let's take religion. If somebody says, Hey, that thing that you learned at church is wrong, that, that, that hits the ear. And you're just like, no, 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 no. You're just bashing my religion. This is discrimination. And let's face it. We have a lot of people bashing every religion and we have a lot of religious discrimination. So when do we know if we're having a reasonable conversation about is this appropriate information or is there a better option? And when we're being discriminated against. And in America, we don't do a good job with this because we yell everything, right? Just, just it, whenever, whenever you see, I, you know, I, I, I do love social media. I, I, I sincerely do. But, you know, the anatomy of an argument, you know, Lucas writes, Gabe has a dark black hair. Now I'm a redhead for everybody. I know you can't see me, but Lucas writes, Gabe has dark black hair. Now I've got two choices here. I can write, hey, Lucas, it's Gabe. How are you doing? I just want you to know that I have red hair and that you are mistaken, right? That That is option number one. Uh, or I can do it the American way and say, you're so ignorant. What's wrong with you, Lucas? I have always had red hair. I'm a proud ginger. Educate yourself. Whole bunch of exclamation points, maybe like the flip off emoji. Uh, both of them have corrected Lucas, but one of them is going to make Lucas feel bad. He's going to double down. He's like, no, when I met you, you had black hair. Maybe it was with that Halloween cost. He's going versus if I'm polite about it, he's like, hey, my bad. And then the information gets corrected. Now you're thinking the color of Gabe's hair has no ramifications on anything. Uh, but what if somebody writes in there, 
Um, I think my mom gave me depression and somebody, your mom is such a good lady. What's wrong with you? She did her best. And, and that's all they're focusing on. And the depression part goes away. Should yeah. the person have blamed their mother for their depression? I, I don't know. I'm going to go ahead and say, no, they absolutely unequivocally should not have, but so what they just publicly stated that they're having depression and all anybody wants to do is defend mom. And that means that the depression doesn't get any help. And it creates another layer of all of those people who weighed in that did not respond to that bid for help. That person now marks them off the list. Yeah. Can't count on them. Can't count on them. Can't count on them. And then you add the addition of, and they shamed me. They made me feel bad. Now they want to stay away from them. So that support system, and I'm making air quotes, is now all gone because of what was really just a misunderstanding or a miscommunication or even just inaccuracy because of the way that they were raised in their culture. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've had many guests talking about, um, you know, BIPOC representation on the show and explaining how this comes up and why we hold on to these things so toughly and how it's generational and how it's rooted in trauma. And that makes it that much more difficult to get around. Uh, sure. But sincerely, we need to be having more conversations. That's number one. We need to be having respectful conversations. That's number two. And three, we all, 100% of us have to be open to the possibility that we are wrong. And many of us are not open to the possibility that we are wrong. And therefore, nothing can reach us. It's also the, we are 100% positive. The expectations, as you said, your dad placed expectations upon you to be a, a man right he thought it was the right thing responsible thing to do yes. the expectation was placed on you know these bipoc communities so for instance the um asian american community um it, at least in, well at least in america uh, they're seen as um hard working um you know uh, timid though um and um smart intelligent those are the traditional stereotypes that americans have of the asian american community that they may seem charming at first but they're highly um destructive or highly um uh, discriminatory towards these communities and we kind of have to recognize that these um these stereotypes we place upon other people unknowingly subconsciously and i, I think we really touched on a on a good note there we've really learned a lot from again listening to the stories uh from members of that community and, and i i wish that those could be amplified more there's there's a gentleman's name who I forget. And, and the only reason I came across him is because they turned his book fresh off the boat into a sitcom that I watched. And I, 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 I perused his book. I, I want to be honest. I didn't read it cover to cover, but, but as I was reading it, one of the things that he said, he, he was, he was a, a Asian American, uh, I believe a, a Chinese American. I, I apologize if I'm getting that wrong. Um, but his, his parents were immigrants, but he was a first generation American and his parents were trying to instill uh it, the reason that I bring this up is because of the timid thing. They were like, no, 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 you have to be humble. They kept saying you have to be humble, but he didn't want to be humble. He, he wanted to be larger than life. He wanted to be big and loud. And, you know, he loved the rap music of, of nineties and, and, and all of that gravitas that came with it and machismo. And that's who he wanted to be. And this was running afoul of his parents, but his parents finally understood and, and, and helped him in, in this way. Now I'm, 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 I'm saying this completely horrifically and I apologize, but I can only imagine if one of your core values is fly below the radar and be humble and you want to be a public figure, right? Or, or a, even just something as small as a podcaster and that flies in the face of being humble, that would be terrible. That would be yeah. a terrible burden. And it was such a terrible burden for him that he wrote about his experience. Now, forget all of that that I just said, and now apply that onto mental health. Mm -hmm. If you are told that, hey, we handle our business at home, we don't get medical care. And then somebody says, look, I think you have a mental illness and you need medical care. Are you going to believe your family who raised you, your culture that has embraced you? Or are you going to believe America who has discriminated against you? I, I can only imagine, I cannot speak conclusively, but I can only imagine if I had to choose between a culture and family who loved me or the, the, the values of a country who has publicly discriminated against me, which way I'm going to go. And this is super dangerous when it comes to mental health issues, because in this case, you, you've trusted the wrong person. But I understand how it happens over and over again. And as a mental health yeah. advocate, I don't know what to do about it. 
because I understand why they're worried. They should be worried. America is awful in this regard. Yeah. Do you think on that note that um, in many cases, the prevention can be better than the cure? I know a lot of mental health disorders can be passed on genetically, but often they're sort of uh, created by environment. And if you do think that the prevention is often important, what do you think are the sort of important things for actually preventing mental illnesses from coming around in the first place? Is it just awareness or is there something more to it? On one hand, awareness is is partially the correct answer. You know, the the awareness campaigns always kind of drive me a little batty, uh, uh, no pun intended, because it's like awareness, awareness, awareness. And I'm like, excellent. What's step two? Well, we're we're not going to we're not going to pay attention to step two. It's awareness, 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 awareness. Could you Uh imagine if like all of you were told to apply for college? And then as soon as you applied for college and got in, you're like, okay, now what? And they're like, nothing. We just wanted you to apply and get in. Well, but should I go? No. Should I study? No. What do I do? We, you applied and you got in that you're done. And you, you're, you're anybody hearing this is like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's what we have with awareness. Hey, you should be aware of this. Okay. And then what? Nothing. You should mm-hmm. just be aware of it. But do I do anything? No, no, of course not. You should just be aware of it. I, listen, that's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, awareness is step one. And then you have to learn the skills. It just, so we have to have open and honest conversations about one, everything, but this we're talking about mental health. We need to have open and honest conversations about our emotion, about mental health, about mental illness, about how we're feeling, about everything that's going on. So that that way we can get reasonable support up to medical care that we need, because there is a world of difference between uh, Lucas, who I'm going to pick on yet again, feeling sad that he failed a test. I, I swear, I, I you're a good test taker, right, Lucas? I don't want anybody thinking. <laughs> I try, I try. <laughs> but it, there is a being being aware and knowledgeable and knowing what to do is the difference between Lucas saying I'm anxious about taking the test and. Uh, I'm suicidal about taking the test. And if we can't pick up on those nuances on those words and provide the right support for Lucas, Lucas may well believe that he reached out for help and we may well believe that we helped him, uh, but in actuality, we've missed it. Uh, So the, so the, the, the short answer to your question is we need to be talking about this 24 seven. It never needs to stop. It always needs to be happened. We need to learn more. We need to understand basic suicide prevention. We need to stop mystifying these illnesses and we need to stop othering these illnesses. And by othering, I mean, it always happens to other families, bad families, people with bad parents, people who have been through trauma, people who were raised in the wrong types of homes or didn't have enough money or their house caught fire or it's always some reason that it's not going to happen to us or our kids or our friends. And we need to understand that 100% of people are susceptible to a mental health crisis and 100% of people could develop a mental illness. And this, this, this idea that we have in our head that it only impacts certain types of people, we have to get away from that because it is, it's just, it's false. Yeah. I was going to ask you as well um, on the, sorry, I'll start again. I was going to ask you as well on the point of sort of, who it can happen to and all that sort of thing. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that a lot of mental illnesses are sort of at least probabilistically hereditary. So they're more likely to be passed on um, if you had a parent or two parents who had it. What would you say to someone who, and I don't agree with this, it's just sort of a hypothetical to begin the discussion. What would you say to someone who argues that it's immoral to have children if you have a mental illness because of the the likelihood of passing it on and so on and so forth? How would you respond to that? The first thing that I would respond is the, the likelihood is not as great as we have been led to believe. The, the brain is is just emerging science, and it's been emerging science for my entire life. And it, it's it's sort of the final frontier. There's just so much we don't understand about the brain, uh, about the chemistry of the brain. There are medicines on the market right now that we know from studies work, but mm-hmm. we can't answer the question of how it works. So that's the first thing that I would point out. Listen... If, if I, I live with bipolar disorder and I decided not to have children because I was terrified of passing it on because I believed that I had a 100% shot of having a, 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 a mentally ill child. And I thought, well, that's just cruel. You know, now I find out that the number is like 10%. Well, now that's, that's a, that's a, that's a different discussion. Look, I, I don't want to pass bipolar disorder onto a child. I don't, I don't want a child that has bipolar disorder, but you know, it should not escape anybody listening that my parents do not have bipolar disorder. My grandparents do not have bipolar disorder. 
I do not have a history of mental illness in my family. And yet here I am. Uh, the reverse is also true. And when you start looking at numbers like 10%, and some studies do have it as high as 30%, but that's a really big sway in, in, in studies that are well-respected. So is the number 10%? Is it 30%? Yeah. Hell, is it 50%? And, and here's what I'd say to them. Having children is terrifying, right? It's just terrifying. Being responsible for a helpless little bundle of, of human is, is, is scary, and it should be scary. And any parent who is not terrified of caring for a child is probably not a good parent. And, and I, I just, I, there's just so many unknowns and, and where does this end? Right. Mm -hmm. It just, at what point are you like, well, yeah, but I'm going to go through your medical history and you, you know, you broke a lot of bones as a kid. So therefore you've got weak bones or just, just, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You, yeah. you know what I mean? But I've seen, I've seen so many parents who both have mental illness, have large families where no mental illness is present. And then there's families like mine where you have me and I don't know what the right answer is, but I, I really think that anybody that, that takes a genetic snapshot of two people and declares that they know the outcome, ah, that's just, that's the stuff of science fiction and it just, it just sounds very, 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 very stigmatizing. I do want to be fair and say that it is, it is terrifying to think of raising a child with mental illness. I, I know these families. My family is one of them. My parents suffered a great deal because of me. And, and I'm so glad that they did because they saved me. But I, I am sad that I had to put them through that. But, you know, lots of families suffer for a lot of reasons. And when I do talk to these families, I'm like, do you regret having your son or daughter? No, they always say no. And, and I, I think that we do need to remember that there's just no predicting the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, just on that note, I mean, firstly, I just quickly wanted to ask if you um, were thinking of having children in the near future. And um, just secondly, underpinning that with a slightly humorous note um, in previous discussions, we've mentioned, we've mentioned hypersexuality and bipolar and whether that hypersexuality and bipolar has uh, led to an increased desire to have children. <laughs> I'm not planning on having children in the new, in the near future. I, I, I did have a vasectomy. I, I took myself out of the, the running for children. Uh, it is funny to okay. think about this idea of having kids and, and bipolar hypersexuality and the fact that I ended up with no children since that is a symptom uh, that I suffered from, but birth control really, really works when used correctly. What I regret the most is I wanted children at one point. Remember I was 26 mm -hmm. before I was diagnosed and I was married for the first time at 20. So mm -hmm. my wife and I discussed it a lot. It was in our plan, right? When we mm -hmm. got married at 20 years old and we were standing on the beach, looking into each other's eyes, I was like, you are the mother of my children. Like, that's a, that's <laughs> exactly where my mind went. And it, then to decide, no, I can't be a dad, right? Because I have bipolar disorder. That's the part that I always like to touch on. When it comes to hypersexuality, I, I think this is, if we're being just frank, I think this is how come sometimes people with bipolar disorder have those unexpected pregnancies because mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard to control your sex drive and you end up putting yourself in very risky places that, that could result in pregnancy STDs uh, and, 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 or just, you know, hurt feelings uh, among like yourself. I mean, there, there were many times that I woke up and I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I go back to her? Why did, you know, we broke up. I, I know she's bad for me. And, oh, look, I spent the weekend at her house because I wanted to have sex so bad. That's not good for my emotions. That's not yeah. good for my mental health. Um, but, but that's, that's what hypersexuality does. It, it just drives you in that direction. I, I have to give you kudos though, Lucas, greatest segue in the history of <laughs> children and tell us that you're hypersexual. <laughs> that's a good one. Hands, just, just, hats off <laughs> that's a great answer just to quickly just uh, close that that topic um you mentioned in your email also about your you've been asked about your favorite sex position and just in in one sentence could you just my favorite sex position is <laughs> my favorite sex position is any position in which i am having sex listen i'm, I'm a middle-aged married man right just i'm just ecstatic to be invited to the party <laughs> at this point. but i want to answer your question honestly so i like to be on the bottom because the view is better from <laughs> 
I was going to just to just, bring it back to something. My mom is not listening. My mom's going to listen to this because of the whole Oxford connection. And she's just going to be like, God, Gabe, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I didn't do it, mom. It was them. And they, they, they're at Oxford. Yeah. Just, 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 just tell my mom it's not my fault. <laughs> I was going to, um, I was going to bring it back to something more serious just quickly. Oh, Polly. percent. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Hypersexuality is one of those things, and it's like sort of an associated problem with bipolar. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the problems with bipolar is that it has lots of those associated issues. So, for example, um, you're a lot more prone to substance abuse and all that, all, all, all that kind of thing. How do you think it muddies the the problems for people who, for example, Kanye went to rehab and so on? Um, do you think like bipolar detectability and stuff might be a lot lower as well as a result and so on? I think there's a few things that we have to consider. So there's this phrase called self-medicating and, and it's mm-hmm. used a lot with mental illness. He was self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. She was self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. We always talk about it or, or often talk about it in terms of drugs and alcohol. It's a mitigating factor for why mm-hmm. somebody with mental illness might have a substance use disorder uh, comorbidity. Um, so, but thinking along those lines, you can self-medicate with anything. Uh, again, while drugs and alcohol is, is the most commonly way, the most common way that we discuss it, uh, I self-medicated with food and sex. Now, hypersexuality also added to that, right? I was hypersexual. I was able to have a lot of sex and I wanted to have a lot of sex and sex felt good. So consider that I think I'm garbage. I want to die. And speaking frankly, I'm also horny. Having sex makes me feel good. That connection with another person makes me feel good. Trying to get laid makes my mind get away from wanting to die and onto who will have sex with me. So it's also a distraction. So I, I think that it's not unusual that those two would really connect in a very, very profound way. And that's that's approaching it from from you know a depression standpoint or a, a low self-esteem standpoint that, that comes with bipolar disorder. Now let's go with mania. I'm God's gift to the world. So you can sure as hell bet that I'm God's gift to women. I'm the greatest lover ever. And again, speaking frankly, I'm really horny. So now it meets up with, I'm just, I'm just doing a public service. I I can't keep all this at home. I got (laughs) to get out there. And you think who would think this way? Mentally, people think this way. (laughs) And, so I, I really think that these are links that people don't understand. And I, I know we don't have time to really get into the weeds on this with hypersexuality, but you know, consider this idea that sex feels good. Sex is natural. Sex is often free. Uh, so often free. The, the, it's just, it, it really does provide a distraction that provides uh, many physical and mental uplifting properties. And, and, it, it just, it shouldn't be hard to figure out where those connect, but it's super dangerous. It is super, super dangerous. For example, I was married and hypersexual. I cheated on my spouse that caused her great pain and she left me. Now I'm divorced uh, because of it. And that was my first wife. And, and I, I took risks to have sex. Now I am super lucky. There was no accidental pregnancies. I never got an STD. Uh, but but there there is a luck factor in, involved in that, mm-hmm. right? It, it could have turned out uh, a, another way. Um, let, let's get into the 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 let, let's get into just the reality. I could have slept with somebody's spouse, and then that person could have come beat me up, trash my car, right? Just I, I mean, how far do you want to take this? I was willing to leave work to have sex. That's how desperate I was to have sex. I could have lost my job, and, and then finally, sex is good. I like sex. Sex is a wonderful thing. And I want everybody to have sex. But when you have to do it, when it is a requirement, when it is, when it is a a driver in you that you must have sex now, it ruins it. It ruins it. I don't know what your hobby is, but if I forced you to do your hobby 24 hours a day, you would hate your hobby. Hypersexuality ruins sex. Just to just to pick up on that, because I think sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, but bipolar may take normal desires and amplify them. So, for example, our friend Faris, uh, Faris loves to have sex, but he may not be in it with the same hypersexual drive. Ollie loves to eat food. And do you in coming from that, do you think that, for example, your bipolar increased your need to eat because you you mentioned that you were quite overweight in the past? Was that related to bipolar or was that a separate issue? 
No, it's completely related to bipolar disorder. So first off, uh, Americans have a, a, a bad relationship with food. And, and I think you use the right word to amplify it. If I did not have bipolar disorder, would I have been overweight? Probably. You know, I, I grew up on fried chicken and cake. Uh, uh, you know, carbs were really, really big in my house. I, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have had a weight problem if I didn't have bipolar disorder. Uh, but what I am saying is I wouldn't have weighed over 550 pounds. I weighed mm. so much when I went to the eating disorder clinic and they put me on the scale, it flashed at 550 because 550 was the highest weight that it could go. I was literally too fat to be weighed at the clinic for people with eating disorders and obesity issues and binge eating disorder that I, I can't say it any franker. Uh, it, and it, and it factored into so many things. It, listen, we all have comfort foods. Comfort foods is a well understood thing. They usually say mom's meatloaf or birthday cake. I was so depressed and I was so sad that I, I ate comfort foods daily. And then I ate comfort foods multiple times a day and it would provide a, a lift or a distraction. So literally at one point in my life, every time I was sad, I would eat an entire sheet cake that I would buy at the bakery. And, and I do mean an entire sheet cake, right? Like they would say, happy birthday, Gabe, except I'd eat the whole thing. And I was sad every day. So I, I was eating entire sheet cakes three, four times a week, trying to manage the symptoms of bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's back to that whole self-medicating thing. I was self-medicating with food. Um, so yeah, just to wrap up on a, on a lighter note, uh, my friend and I were, were this thing called Ents Reps for our college. So basically we organize events and stuff uh, within college, like it, Ents is short for entertainment. Um, so we were wondering, we were going to throw an event for Mind, you know, the, the mental health charity. So I wanted to ask you if you had any ideas, because I'm sort of, I'm stuck for ideas. So do you have any ideas for like a fundraiser we could do? I mean, naturally, I'm going to recommend that you hire Gabe and bring him <laughs> to England and sell tickets to what would only be the greatest keynote in the history of whatever event that you're doing, but, but that, that, that's probably very, very self-serving. I, you know, listen, when it, when it comes to, to fundraising, it, it's, it's, it's all about connection to the cause, right? It's connection. You, you've got to have just enough to keep people interesting, uh, but not so much that they feel that you're wasting the money. Uh, right. So you, you, you'd be shocked at how many times I, as a mental health advocate, I'm like, they're like, Hey, do you want to come to, you know, the, 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 the this expensive place and, and have this expensive food and do this expensive stuff. We're raising money and it costs $99. And I quickly do math on this. And I'm like, how much money are you actually raising for the charity? Like, like what, what part of this is for the charity and, and what part of it uh, is just, you want to get together in like high end clothing, uh, you know, you just want to wear a, a tuxedo. Like you, you don't, you don't fool me. Uh, there's it, there's, there's that, there's that line and uh, knowing where that line is and what connects with your people is it, you know, something that good development directors and, and fundraisers do an example that I have, or not an example, but maybe an idea is in the peer community. Uh, so think uh, drop-in centers and, and clubhouses and things where people with uh, mental illness, addiction, and trauma can just drop in and hang out, right? They don't have to make an appointment. They can just show up whenever they want, uh, get support, take classes, just even play cards or just be around other people so that they don't have to be alone. One of the things that we really, really like is dancing. We're, we're all terrible at it. I'll, I'll be the first one to admit, but once a year, at least before the pandemic, we, we haven't brought it back yet because of, of pandemic related issues. But uh, once a year before the pandemic, we would we would rent a, a, a clubhouse, a, 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 you know, like a picnic facility, but like an indoor one. I don't even know what to call it, but we'd rent a room. Let's just go with that. We'd rent a giant room. We'd hire a DJ. And that was it. That, that, that That's it. We'd get some food donated. We'd get some soda and, and, and water donated. And, and we would just, for two hours, we would celebrate recovery and we called the whole thing peer dance. And uh, we, we, uh, we let people come for free, but we asked them for donations. So the tickets were zero, but when you checked out, it was like, Hey, do you want to make a $5 donation? $5. We'll give coffee to three people for two days. Uh, or, or to, and, and then people could just do whatever they wanted. And then on top of that, when they got there, we'd, you know, do a little pitching, have like donations and have an auction. I don't know how much money you want to raise. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that something like that's only going to raise, you know, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars, which for our purposes was a great amount of money to raise in a great community event.
Now, if you tell me that you're trying to raise $100,000, I believe once that Lucas told me that y'all know Stephen Fry. You uh, might want to get him involved. Of course, point. Lucas would say we knew him. Yeah. <laughs> only, only I know him. Only I know him. <laughs> no, no, Stephen Fry. Um, you've got to decide where you are on the thing, but, but sincerely, make sure there's a connection and don't go too big. Right? Mm. If I tried to throw you know, the Met Gala for, for the, the people at the Pierce, they would not respond to it. They would not like it. And all they would think is that's just a waste of money, time, energy, and effort. Meet yeah. the people where they are, keep that connection and really, 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 really just pounce on anyone who could make an in-kind donation. Okay, Those so bottom line. Raffle off an auction, they make so much money. Bottom line, you just want us to dance and have fun. <laughs> I just want you to dance and have fun. I mean, and hire me we as can a manage that. speaker, but <laughs> putting that one aside, uh, just give the people what they want. Uh, do a little <laughs> polling. You know, what would you like to see as a fundraiser? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you'd be surprised. You know, some organizations and these organizations are super lucky. They're like, look, we're really busy. We don't want a fundraiser. Just like tell us, like, like send us out a link and we will all donate money. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't want to go anywhere. We're just way too busy. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, um, uh, in America, we have like the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, they don't really have many events. They're, they're, they're a nationwide organization. Um, but they have capital campaigns. They have end of year giving. Uh, they're, they're, they're always asking me for money, but they're always doing it in some, you know, like donate money for this cause and to go for this. We're, we're looking to do this and we need this money. Right. And that yeah. really relates to me because I just, I don't, I don't have time to be in a room full of ACLU members. Yeah. I'm well, really, really busy. Uh, I but, think, I think the Oxford and the Christchurch community will, will spare a moment to, to have a little party next term. Uh, I think that that's manageable, but um, I think that was that was our final question. And you know, Gabe, we just from all of us here at Loaf and on the Loaf podcast, and for all the the Loaf gang out there listening, you know, we just wanted to say a massive, massive thank you for joining us today. And we wanted to ask you if you had any concluding thoughts about the discussion today and anything else in general that you wanted to impart. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. it. Parting words are nobody should listen to a one hour podcast and declare them an expert on ever, anything. Mm. And let me say that. Word. I want to say thank you so much for, for having me. It, it's been a really great time. And as far as concluding thoughts are, you know, nobody should listen to a one hour podcast and consider themselves an expert on ever, anything. And, and we see this a lot uh, in the world now where people are like, I did my own research. I watched a YouTube video. And, and they've just decided that they just have this high level of knowledge about something based on something like a podcast or an article or a YouTube video. Uh, I want you to watch like all the YouTube videos you can find and listen to all the podcasts. But what I also want you to do is be open to the idea that you can learn more. This is great foundational knowledge. We've covered on a lot of things, but seriously, uh, I'm not looking to make fans. I'm looking to make critical thinkers disagree with me, figure out how it applies to your own life, figure out what parts you like and what parts you don't. And that's okay. In fact, that's, that is my goal as an advocate for you to figure out what will help you and amplify it and figure out what will hurt you and ignore it and move forward in your own way. So that, that's my closing thoughts. Just, just consider all of these things, apply them to your own life. And remember, we did not cover everything. We just didn't. We didn't. We only had an hour. We didn't cover everything. Keep, keep, keep learning, keep conversing, and keep growing. Sweet. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you so much. For Thank you so much. Well, thanks again for coming. Uh, this has been the first episode of season two. Well, we've got loads of other great episodes coming up, and uh, we hope you guys stick around. Thanks again to Gabe Howard, mental health advocate and author and podcaster, and uh, hopefully we can work again in the future.